Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Stephen Elman about his magisterial book, When Theories Touch, A Historical and Theoretical Integration of Psychoanalytic Thought, published by Karnak in 2010. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Stephen Elman about his magisterial book, When Theories Touch, A Historical and Theoretical Integration of Psychoanalytic Thought, published by Karnak in 2010. Steve, welcome. It's great to have you on. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you, Anna. It's our pleasure. So, okay, first I'm going to um, briefly introduce you. Uh, Stephen J. Elman earned a Ph.D. in clinical psychology in 1968 from New York University and graduated in 1982 from the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, also known as IPTAR. His uh, postdoctoral training was in the psychology and neurophysiology of sleep and dreams at Albert Einstein College of Medicine after which he became a professor in the Graduate School of City University of New York, um, or CUNY. Throughout most of his career, he has been both a clinician and researcher. At CUNY, he was director of the Ph.D. program in clinical psychology and is now, after 30 years as professor at CUNY, professor emeritus. He has published more than 70 papers on psychoanalysis, sleep, and dreams, and the neurophysiology of motivation. In addition, he has published and co-edited four psychoanalytic volumes and two volumes on sleep and dreams, the best known of which are Freud's Technique Papers, A Contemporary Perspective, published in 1991 with Jason Aronson, and The Mind and Sleep uh, with John Antrobus, published in 1991 by Wiley. He's been uh, president of IPTAR twice and is currently a training and supervising analyst at IPTAR. He's also a clinical professor in the New York University postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Steve was the first president of the Confederation of Independent Psychoanalytic Societies, which is the national professional organization of the independent uh, IPA societies of the U.S., and was previously on the executive council of the IPA. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and has held many editorial positions on various psychoanalytic journals. Wow, you've been busy. (laughs) Okay, so question number one, I guess. Um, I'd like to actually begin by asking, uh, well, what inspired you to write the book, but maybe more specifically, um, when's the uh, integrative impulse? Well, that's a, um, you know, in, in... As you were talking, I was also, uh, since I probably know my bio fairly well, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, I was looking and seeing, you know, the preface to my book. I thought I'd, I'd get it out since I haven't uh, looked at it for a long time. Um, 
And that is, you know, since I began teaching, I've always taught a variety of authors. Um, before I became politically aware, um, I remember telling um, Bob Holt, a professor of mine at NYU, um, that I was really, and Bob, of course, was a well-known Freudian critic and scholar, as you know, and mm-hmm. as with Bob Holt. Bob Holt, George Klein, and Merton Gill was there at the time, uh, as well as Leo Goldberger and others. Um, Bob Langs was uh, in and out um, of the research center. And I I said, you know, I really like, you know, some of Searles' work. And Bob (laughs) said to me, well, you know, um, he tends to be an interpersonalist. (laughs) And I said, yeah, yeah, um, okay, uh, wasn't exactly sure was that a good thing or a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. I said, yeah, but I thought he he described you know some of in my interest in schizophrenia you know in a very vivid clinical way. Um, and then I, you know, uh, Bob was very mild in his critique. Um, but when I told Merton that, Merton was much stronger. Mert Mert. Uh, was still a Freudian at that point and, uh, you know, uh, educated me that politically uh, Searles was out. But I never quite um, <laughs> went along with the political uh, niceties of this. And when I began to teach a course in Disorders of the Self, you know, it included Hartman, Jacobson, Searles, mm-hmm. um, some aspects of Sullivan because I was interested in some of Sullivan's writings, etc., um, as well as Guntrip, who uh, I met. Guntrip was very nice to me because um, I was I liked his some of his books and wrote to him, and he wrote back, and when he came to speak at White, he had lunch with me and spent an afternoon telling me about all the authors I should read. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, which then got me to read Klein, um, you know, as well as Fairburn, um, you know, which Guntrip strongly recommended, uh, but he most strongly recommended Winnicott. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that began my course in object relations theory. Uh, and I began to feel more and more, um, particularly as I went, since my first analytic institute was New York Psychoanalytic, I began to feel more and more that what divided people was much more political um, than uh, than sub- substantive in many ways. Um, uh, and when I started teaching the course on object relations theory, it was then the integrative um, impulse came into being, but also a strong liaison with Edith Jacobson, who I feel in her work is quite integrative and people um, don't appreciate it. Um, And if you read my book, you'll see that there isn't a chapter on Jacobson because my chapter on Jacobson was so long that (laughs) the publisher said, you know, 700 pages is enough. Um, We can't have another (laughs) 80 pages on Jacobson. Uh, um, He also (laughs) cut down my chapter on Beyond, so... Ah, okay. So. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I actually want to give the um uh this connects to my 
to what I was going to be my next question, but let, I wanted to give the audience a better sense of the structure of the book uh, and what is included. So it consists of, um, I think, 18, if I'm not mistaken, main body chapters, not including the book. Yeah. yeah, not including the epilogue. And right, um, the first four are in Freud, and they're a tour de force, I think. And then there's um, a chapter on on a Freud and ego psychology, a few on Klein and the controversial discussions. There's one, um, a chapter on Fairburn, uh, a long chapter on Winnicott, followed by chapters on Sullivan, Mahler, Kohut, Kernberg, Beyond, Contemporary Conflict Theory, Relational Theory, and an Integrative Chapter. And I think the last chapter is um, is called a Tentative Developmental Model, where which is another sort of uh, another integrative effort. So... Um, Oh, and each chapter has a commentary section where you do much of your inter- interpretive and integrative uh, labor. Well, um, I like it as you describe it. <laughs> so I, okay. So given all that, I'm. I wanted to ask uh, what, with a book like this, it, it's of course tempting um, to ask if there's any theorist you wish now uh, that you'd included or or left out, because <laughs> right away I noticed, especially given my interests. Uh, Fans of this program will know this. Um, I notice that there's no Lacan. There's nobody French. Um, they seem omitted. And, but also, you know, just uh, there's no Ferenczi. There's no Erickson. I mean, there are, there, are not, there are a couple of examples of – there's sort of a couple omissions, I would say, that are fairly glaring. So, um, yeah, I'm curious what, what, you know, drove the decisions, the decision to put some people in, take some people out, et cetera. Well, you know – Part of the decision was pragmatic. Mm. <laughs> you know, I had um, I had a criteria. If I hadn't read everything that the author had written and gone over it a couple of times, I I didn't really feel I was inside the author's uh, the author's perspective, and I really wanted to feel like I was inside the author's perspective. And as I was writing various chapters, I noticed I started making. Uh, Fairburn-like interpretations <laughs> of patients and, you know, cohesion uh, interventions uh, at other points. So that was one That was one criteria. I wanted to... It's not true that I didn't include any aspect of forensic. I mean, there are various mentions of forensic. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, there should have been more, um, you know, around that. So, but... But the big omission to me is Lacan. Um, and I just didn't feel I knew Lacan well enough. I knew other French. I mean, I know, you know, I've been through the Berkstead Breen book on French psychoanalysis, and I've spoken in France, uh, you know, several times and um, twice been in, you know, integrated North American France um, psychoanalytic. Uh, Weekends, or I guess they were longer than weekends. Um, so I, I knew certainly Laplanche's work well, and I'm going back over that, and Andre Green's work well. I didn't really feel I knew Lacan's work well, and I felt that I was somewhat um, a victim of a transferential bias of the IPA. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, and and I should have I should have known. Also. I don't know. Um, Richard Elman is my cousin, hmm. um, and in one of the last things he wrote to his daughter Maud Elman, who's now uh, a professor at the University of Chicago, 
was um, you shouldn't be so taken with Lacan. You should really, re- you know, go back and read Freud. Um, so I thought that hmm. Dick was perhaps writing to me as well, but probably not. Um, but you know, um, I think Lacan is, and I, I wrote in the book. I think Lacan is the glaring weakness from from my perspective. Hmm. Um, it, you know, Lacan should be there. If I ever was going to do a revised version of this book, uh, I can't imagine it would be too Volume much. 2? Vol- <laughs> Volume 2. That would uh, tax the reader, it seems to me. Uh, um, but You, you could know, compare I, Object A and Transitional Phenomena. You can really link Winnicott. It would be, anyway, that's just my yes, fantasy. Yeah, the whole mirroring. I mean, you know, it's not that I mm-hmm. hadn't read aspects of Lacan wasn't interested. I was and even was going to uh, sign up at a Lacanian Institute for a couple of years. Hmm. But um, I didn't feel I knew, I didn't feel I knew Lacan in the way that I knew all the other authors that I had taught for a long time. I had taught Lacan a couple of times, but it really, um, to put it in Winnicott's terms, I didn't feel it was in my bones. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, Is there anybody you wish you'd... Uh not included that you included or is that is you have no regrets i mean is there someone have, you would have substituted or something like that yeah i i hmm. i feel my the weakest chapter in my view is the chapter on sullivan and i included sullivan because of you know my long standing interest in in treating schizophrenic patients um you know which i am going to write about at some point in in some detail Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I thought it was a weak chapter. I, I feel that I had nothing new to say about Sullivan, and um, I really feel I should have uh, had a chapter on Jacobson um, included, who was certainly influenced me a great deal. Yeah, um, I sensed a certain reticence in the Sullivan chapter. Like an unwillingness, almost an unwillingness to engage fully with him. But I think maybe, that's yeah. yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah. that's an accurate... Uh, um, although, you know, for a while I certainly was definitely interested in Sullivan, but I I felt the interest has not been enduring. Um, and Erickson, I like Erickson a great deal, and... Uh, I, and I and I've taught Erickson, and I've, I think I've read everything Erickson has written. But I um, there was more um, the publisher saying, "Well, people aren't interested in Erickson any longer," and I listened, and that was hmm. I think that was somewhat stupid on my part. Um, mm-hmm. On one hand, on the other hand, he he even the book that I that you see presently. Um, a 700-page book. He wanted to divide into two books, which I definitely didn't didn't want. And he said, "Any longer, any longer a book." And uh, <laughs> it was kind of difficult to carry around with me when I was reading it. It was. Um, it's, so, it's good exercise. You know, yeah, that's right. You need upper body things. It's useful. <laughs> that's good. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, chapters, like the Sullivan chapter, um, yeah, I, I sense something was up there. Um, also, yeah, I'm curious. In th- there are other chapters, like Kernberg. Um, 
you didn't write that chapter alone. There are chapters that you chose to kind of assign to others or you wrote in in concert in cooperation with another author. Um, so I'm, cu- I'm curious about that and, and in relation to that, well, yeah, let's 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 talk about that a little bit. If if that's if that's if there's any story behind there, particularly the well, Kernberg. No. Yeah, Kernberg's a good example. I mean, I I, I thought um, it there was a fairly well publicized. Probably no one remembers it besides me, but I was Kernberg's discussant at um, when he was uh, when he presented in New York and at a fairly. You know, there may be 500 or 700 people there. Mm-hmm. And um, both Kernberg and his wife um, felt, as she once said to me, once when I said hello to her, and I said, I don't know if you remember me. She said, of course I remember you. You gave Otto the most critical discussion he's ever had. Wow. <laughs> and I, I said, well, Otto's had a very good life. If that was, <laughs> if that was the mm-hmm. most critical... That was one Paulina, um, but you know, uh, I think, I think people, you know, and, and I felt that I had written um, another chapter that was probably too critical of Kernberg, mm. uh, mm-hmm. and I really wanted in the book. I really wanted to stay balanced, except when I got to the commentary. Insofar as I could, I wanted to stay balanced and really give the reader a sense of what the person said. So I thought. You know, um, Monica Karski, who's a very bright colleague, ex-student of mine, um, you know, is close contacts with Kernberg. So so we wrote that chapter together. Um, mm-hmm. The Margaret Mahler chapter, you know, with Annie Bergman, I did right. it out of respect for Annie, who's a long-term colleague of mine. And, you know, obviously she's, you know, Mahler, Pine, and Bergman um, right. She's had a long, you know, collaboration. I also thought I would be. I wrote a chapter, you know, the Art Lynch, um, Arnie Richards chapter. I thought I, I'm too critical of modern day conflict theory, mm-hmm. um, and didn't want to. I didn't want. I didn't want hatchet job. <laughs> I didn't want it to be a political book in the way that I saw Greenberg and Mitchell's book as a political book. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted the commentary to really stand apart from, you know, the elucidation of somebody's position. And so where I didn't think I could do an even handed job, I asked, uh, you know, Art, Art Lynch and Arnie, uh, who are, you know, I thought that was, um, you know, and I thought. For someone like Steve Mitchell, I thought I had a good deal of sympathy towards his position and where he came from. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I thought I was, um, I don't know how relational people felt, but I, but I thought <laughs> I was even-handed. Uh, I thought, I think Lou Aaron said he thought it was even-handed. I mean, I know he used the book for his reading group, so. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I thought. The, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I don't. Uh, no, I just. I also. I, I just real. I just remembered that I felt a little bit like in the ego psychology on a Freud chapter. It's a little bit. There's a little strain there to be. I don't know to be generous, but maybe I just read into that because of my own biases. <laughs> I, I, just, I see. I, there. 
There I wouldn't agree. I think both Hartman and Anna Freud are greatly underestimated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I particularly with Hartman use the metapsychology of schizophrenia, which most people don't know. Oh, that's um, right. That's right. You really bring that out. Yeah. You know, and to show how Hartman had very early ideas about the development of defense, the role of aggression, um, how he, you know, compares his views with Klein's, and he had read Klein. Um, and I thought how Anna Freud was someone who really redressed a great deal of the excesses of, you know, some of the um, early Freudians, um, where she really was trying to say, look, the way you know something is through the patient's conscious state. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not you're not talking directly to their unconscious as as you fantasize you're doing, uh, and the way you interpret sometimes is somewhat out of control. And I thought I thought Anna Freud's you know distinctions between ego inhibitive and ego restrictive um, ideas uh, or defenses um, is a useful one. Um, mm. You know, um, so I. I Whatever, I don't think I, there, I, I think I, I had an appreciation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I had a much stronger appreciation for Melanie Klein than for, uh, for Anna Freud, but I, I don't see, I think a lot of their differences can be bridged, um, not, not in some aspects of technique, but, but even there they can be bridged if you really look you know, carefully and analyze the way Klein says she interprets, but she does it in such, in my view, empathic way most of the time that, um, you know, people parody Klein, but I don't think, they don't really Mm -hmm. carefully do an analysis of the way Klein actually has talked to patients. Yeah, I I definitely felt uh, the love for Melanie Klein. I also felt it for... Especially, and I think this may be obvious to people who know you, but I felt it in the Winnicott chapter. It was very, very loving chapter. Very well, nice. yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. both of those are correct. I, I think, um, I think those, for me, those are two of the most significant analysts. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think Winnicott, in many ways, just as I think beyond. You know, I, I wrote a very long chapter on Beyond, which um, I didn't want to cut down. I'm going to do something else with it. Um, and so, you know, Victoria or Vicki Stevens, you know, wrote a, a much shorter one and a good one. Um, but I didn't, I, you know, because I thought for me, Winnicott and Beyond in a different way are both prime interpreters of the importance of Klein. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in different, in different ways. Uh, and I don't think people realize, you know, how well Winnicott in some ways grasped the importance of Klein beyond in a fuller way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you really bring that out in the Winnicott chapter for sure. Um, but, uh, I, the, so it re- related to this a little bit, um, so at New Books in Psychoanalysis, we have this five-year rule uh, generally, meaning we only cover uh, 
books published in the last five years. And okay. so, so you and I are just making it under the wire here in November uh-huh. 2015. But, uh, book, sorry. <laughs> but I have to say, I'm sort of glad to be interviewing you five years later because, well, first of all, because it's like it's a very thick volume and sometimes a volume like this needs – it requires some perspective. But also related to that because five years ago when the book first came out, I think – you were teaching a class at NYU postdoc, and I was in that um, – well, I was not in analytic training then, but Lou Aaron and you generously allowed me to audit the class. And so anyway, I remember you assigned most of your chapters except – I noticed because they weren't marked in my book, the Sullivan chapter, which you mentioned you didn't love, and Mahler, I think you did not assign, and maybe a few others. But I, I guess my question is um, – now that you've been teaching the book for, I, I guess you have you been teaching it for the last five years. I assume you have. You- um, not every year, but yes. I mean, I, I've taught it again at NYU postdoc, and I've taught it at Iptar three mm-hmm. times. Um, yeah. Do you feel like um, some chapters work better pedagogically than others, or I mean, I guess how is your teaching of the book um, changed over time, if at all, or changed your perspective on the book? Well, um, it's gotten me to want to write a new book, <laughs> um, you know, around that, uh, that emphasizes some aspects of this book, but, you know, puts it much more into clinical terms, mm. which I do in Chapter 17, but, but, you know, there wasn't enough room, you know, for all of that, um, you know, around that, but... Uh, I think um, if I was going to do this again, I would take out, I probably would take out the Sullivan and the Mahler chapter, um, write somewhat more about, uh, I mean, if, I was, if it was just going to be in one book and not another book on technique, if I was going to do it all in one book, I would write much more about, you know, some of the things I'm writing about now, you know, the analytic clarity into subjectivity, the limitations of those concepts. Um, And I would, since it has been in the last two or three years, I've been reading almost entirely in French psychoanalysis. I would include include French and Italian, which is going to be a strong emphasis in the next book. Oh, I was Uh, going to actually ask you about the Italians. Oh, good. Yeah. You know, because, you know, um, I don't know if I was when you, was I, was I the program chair of the IPA when uh, you were taking the course? Possibly. Uh, it was 2010. Uh, yeah. Well, 2000, you know, I don't know. I probably didn't mention it. I already, obviously I knew I was the program chair, <laughs> um, but probably wasn't terribly relevant to the course. Um, but Nino, uh, Nino Ferro was on my committee. Oh, okay. Um, he was head of, uh, Europe, uh, and Roberto Doria, Doria Mendina was head of, um, South America. And so I got to know a great deal about some aspects of South American. I mean, I'd always see, there's a chapter that's going to be in my new book on Racker, which mm. I, um, who I thought was, um, important and uh, actually there's an interesting story about Racker and Echigoyen uh, if we have time I'll 
um, you know, uh, so I don't, I don't really in, include Mahler or Sullivan. I do include Beyond in a stronger way, and I include more of the Neocolonians, particularly Ron Britton, mm-hmm. um, and some of, uh, and that's much more a way. I, I don't, and to be honest, I don't remember if that's what I did. When you took the course, uh, you assigned you assigned some neoclinians, yeah, maybe to compensate for that, or you know, I, you assigned um, you assigned a lot besides your book, but uh, you organized the other readings around the chapters. So, mm-hmm. um, speaking of technique and cl- the clinical, I was I was actually I had this in mind to ask you that. Um, you know that the implications of all this theoretical integration for for technique. Uh, I didn't feel like there was a ton on technique, but I started to think what the integrative work you did do, how it would look, what it would look like in the consulting room. I mean, can you say a little bit about that? I know it's a huge question. <laughs> um, well, any, anything you question. can tell me would be would be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing neither of us mentioned is my chapter on cohort. Okay. Which I also thought was an important chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and some mention of Shelley Bach. Um, you know, so from my perspective, something that Winnicott, Klein, Beyond, Racker in a different way, um, and Cohut and Shelley Bach all talk to is how to enter the patient's world. Um, and with different patients, there are different aspects. So that with some patients, it seems to me projective identification is a key concept that you have to constantly be thinking about, you know, what the patient is putting inside of you uh, and how you're responding to it. Um, with other patients, and I think patients that Cohut writes about, um, you know, uh, Cohut, from my point of view, really writes about patients who really um, don't want to really tolerate a two-person field, forget Mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, but really want a certain kind of self-object world uh, for a period of time. And... um, it's, you know, when you start to experience some things like um, what uh, a neoclinian or Kleinian analyst would talk about, it's then that you start to see that the self-object transference starts to un- become unhinged <laughs> and there's some space for um, the other to start to make an intervention that starts to look more like an interpretive intervention. Because from my point of view, cohort really never fully interprets uh, in the way that I would consider interpretation. Interpretation, that is, to really explicate unconscious fantasy. Um, And so from my point of view, I try to take elements of Winnicott's ideas about entering the patient's world as well um, you know, uh, when he writes about patients where reliability, um, you know, and the analyst being able to contain, he doesn't use contain, but he uses concepts 
where Bion probably should have credited him for the idea <laughs> of containment, um, you know, is more is more crucial than interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I see a variety of analysts, including Bion, um, who are really talking about, you know, ideas of mirroring synthesis, containment, and ways of entering the patient's world so that the patient is, you know, uh, able to tolerate and utilize interpretive comments. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me some of the synthesis, you know, that I've talked about in the theories, uh, you know, start to take place um, in, you know, in my ideas about uh, technique. Um, So that for me, Jessica Benjamin's idea about intersubjectivity, as I think I wrote in this book, but I might not have, but I wrote it some other place, if not in this book, is something that's a better, is an idea of a developmental, a developmental occurrence as opposed to a theoretical postulate in the way that, say, someone like Stallero mm-hmm. uh, talks about uh, intersubjectivity. And so it seems to me, you know, that intersubjectivity, if you think about it as a developmental concept, um, you're thinking about something that can't, shouldn't be taken as a given in the way that, say, Ogden does, or that the analytic third, for me, also isn't a given. It's something that can occur in analysis at some point, um, and that sometimes we have to talk about um, fractions one and one and one eighth, uh, you know, and things like that, rather than uh, even a two-person field for some patients till really um, the treatment begins. And something that I've called analytic trust develops in a way that allows the analytic couple to both be together and separate, separate somewhat, so mm-hmm. that they tolerate an alternative perspective. So in writing about those kinds of things, I, I utilize a variety of theoretical concepts that I think are important. Um, mm-hmm. um, so so this, in, this sort of integration helps you deal with a wider uh, range of patients or, or just gauge what a patient needs in the moment in a certain, in a given or period of time. It gives yeah. you more versatility. It gives you more vers- versatility. It seems right, better. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think allows you to enter a, a wider variety of patients' mm-hmm. worlds. Than, um, so the whole idea of a patient being unanalyzable um, for me is somewhat um, a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about actually another meta question about integration. What, what is? How do you think of? I mean, you 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 speak to this a little bit, of course, in the book. Um, or throughout the book, really, but maybe for our audience, you can talk a little bit about what theoretical or clinical, you know, integration really means, because, you know, it's not, it's clearly just not simply eclecticism, and it's not simply um, kind of juxtaposing various things or, or seeing connections. There's something much more synthetic, or you're trying to do something much more synthetic here. So what would be you know, what, what, what would be integration? What, what is the method there? Well, you know, the method there is really to develop 
a theory um, that, in a sense, is a movable theory um, that can explain different phenomena. For instance, um, in the last chapter, I take a look at, um, you know, why some babies look Winnicottian and some babies look Kleinian, um, you know, and try to say, well, we can stay within, you know, a theoretical matrix um, if the theoretical matrix has, you know, is a multiple factor theoretical matrix that says sometimes one factor is more important than another um, and develop a way of, you know, having a way of understanding the mixture of these factors that produce, you know, quite different looking babies and quite different looking mother-infant interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so th- that's that's the attempt all the way through. Um, you know, um, I have to say that the base is a is a quasi freudian base mm-hmm. but but more so in the questions that freud asks than than in the answers that he provides um, I noticed that you, you you know you do ask certain fundamental questions throughout the book about development and you you're bringing up the baby made me think of it that like the concept of uh freud's concept of the uh purified pleasure ego appears over and over again another Another recurring issue um, that, you know, appears over and over again in the book is the question of whether an infant is, you know, at first pleasure-seeking or object-seeking. And maybe you can speak to both, like autoerotism on the one hand, the purified pleasure ego on the other. Well, you know, um, to take the second question first, I thought that was a particularly poor question that Fairburn asked. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though, <Right. laughs> even though I thought he added a great deal in terms of some of his concepts, but you know the way many babies become object related is through um, the cessation of pain or the uh, ontogenesis of pleasure, um, pleasure through various kinds of survival issues and so from my it's part of the reason I brought up the holding research in chapter 18 um, that holding uh, is an extremely it's not that the baby is genetically object related mm-hmm. or you know probably somewhat um, or genetically pleasure seeking somewhat um, but those things really ideally come together um, and that for baby holding is both object-related and pleasurable. Um, You know, and with some babies, some babies probably need, you know, uh, more pleasure and are more active in terms of seeking pleasure than others. And some babies um, probably, you know, need to be um, soothed and calmed in a different way. Um, uh, And, you know, I, I get it. I try to get at one of the factors in the in these in this type of development by the idea of underlying different kinds of endogenous stimulations or in or internal stimulation, mm-hmm. which I think goes on all the time. And um, 
And fortunately, people like Damasio and others um, and Pansek um, are starting to uh, give some validity to concepts like they call a drive. I no longer hmm. call it drive. Um, I, I once presented a paper, sent a paper to science um, <laughs> on REM deprivation and intracranial self-stimulation. I used the term drive and it was rejected. <laughs> and a friend of mine who was an editor said, don't use the term drive. Just change that one word. I did and put in endogenous stimulation instead of drive and the paper was accepted. Wow. And that's the only change that I made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so much of this is semantic, like... Um the idea of you know this this question of whether the baby at first if there are objects early on and it depends how you define object you know it's like I think you make that clear throughout that um, this is where these arguments um, over the years have have really taken shape over you know but yeah and divided so yeah. you know and look clearly you know some babies clearly find some things extremely pleasurable um you know you know you don't need to be an animal researcher to know um some babies just like to look or you know if you do an experiment with rats you can get them to work fairly hard just to look at things <laughs> it's built in it's built into the organism in terms of both pleasure and survival mhm yeah so um uh, now that, um, well, I was going to ask you also if you talked a little bit about technique, but how how did the writing and teaching of the book um, affect your practice? Do you think did you did you really? I mean, it sounds like you already practiced in this integrative way before you wrote the book. Um, did something happen in the course of the writing or or afterwards? Well, when I finally wrote the book, I wrote it for this length of book relatively quickly. <laughs> um, did you have the chapters prepared like long in advance or did you, were you writing this book your whole career in a way? Well, it's a 700 I mean, page that. book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. But, but actually the actual writing probably was two years. But as I would, I mean, I wasn't exactly kidding, you know. Um, you know, one perceptive patient said, you know, it feels like every once in a while you're changing theories. No. <laughs> mm. And I think that had to do with different different things uh, <laughs> that I was writing. But but I think the book did solidify um, the idea of you know integrative technique, integrative attempts, both in terms of theory, developmental theory structural theory as and most importantly to, for me at this point technique mm-hmm. um, so that's what my next book is uh we'll talk about that in a second i just wanted to ask you something else about the freud chapters the four freud chapters because before sure. yeah it seems like i was thinking about who are the figures in the book who enable the integration who really stand you know who kind of are i to me the big 3 are um Maybe you can add somebody, but Freud, Winnicott, and Klein. I don't know. Without them, I'm not sure. Maybe Fairburn. I don't know. But it would be hard to imagine this book. Um, what, do, what do you think about that? And Because I, I also thought before doing anything, you sort of had to integrate Freud himself. 
a little bit, or at least you had to choose which Freud you were going to kind of use for the integration. And it seems like it was the object relations Freud that, that really came out. Well, clearly, the, middle, the middle Freud, yeah. Right. And I think it's also, I mean, a long time ago, I, as you mentioned, I wrote a book of Freud's technique papers. Mm-hmm. And Freud's technique papers are written at the same time that what I call his object relations era is taking place, or other people call it, you know, a lot of his metapsychology papers. But mm-hmm. metapsychology is a bad name for those papers because hmm. most of them really have to do with early development, his ideas about the development of love and, you know, what it means. Um, So, uh, you know, and there's a quote from Freud that I frequently like, you know, in the uh, the beginning of the third section of the paper on narcissism, where he says, look, um, you know, uh, if you look at Adler, he takes Adler and says Adler's too... Adler's idea of masculine protest is very similar to our our idea of castration anxiety. And then he goes on to say he knows of various neuroses where the castration anxiety plays no part at all. Hmm. Um, And so when I used to attend New York Psychoanalytic Institute, to be particularly annoying, I would say to people, well, what do you think, what were Freud's psychosexual stages in 1913? (laughs) Yeah, you know, and um, I think and I pe- know because I read your book. But <laughs> right, but most people, but mo- but almost none, or, nobody would know—not mm-hmm. the instructors or the students—that <laughs> Freud was talking about autoerotism, narcissism. From my perspective, the editors of the Standard Edition would say in 1913 it was anal sadism, but I would say he was really talking about object choice and then object love. So none of those things sound like traditional mucous membrane ideas. So when I presented that, say at New York Medical School Psychoanalytic Institutes, and I presented these ideas, you know, to um, a class um, that Arnold Rothstein asked me to uh, present, he said, Freud never said that. And I said, well, look, um, what I'm telling you that Freud said was is mirrored in what the, the editors of the standard the editors of the standard edition would say his stages were autoerotism, narcissism, anal sadism, and object love. I'm just changing object choice because I think that really is a much better reading of what Freud was talking about in the his choice of neurosis paper in 1913. But mm-hmm. there's a really anachronistic attempt to say that Freud always was talking about, you know, oral, anal, and phallic. Um, and uh, as a variety of people, as Laplanche, Laplanche is someone who says, look, you should read three essays and make sure you take out all the footnotes that Freud puts in, you know, later. Right, leave the 1905 text. And you'd see the 1905 text is very different than your ideas about what Freud meant by three essays of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've been saying that for many years, uh, trying to uh, get people to sort of see where Freud Freud was. You know, and in many ways, Freud's later, you know, emphasis on the Oedipal period, because up to 1915, 
only one neurosis was in what he might call the Oedipal period in object love, and that was hysteria. Everything else was before the Oedipal period. Mm-hmm. So that so that focusing on that or emphasizing that part of Freud enables you to then reach out to these other theorists, or use, yeah, right. go ahead, yeah, corral them or whatever. <laughs> right, Integrate. and yeah, and to also say, you know, projective interjective mechanisms, which mm-hmm. I, I try to point out, you know, was originally a, a frenzy idea in 1909, um, was something that Freud em- embraced in his idea of the purified pleasure ego which is the beginning of narcissism for Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where every, things were then divided into all good and all bad, you know, which is what he meant by the purified pleasure ego, and that occurred through projective, introjective mechanisms, very similar to what Klein talked about in terms of projective identification. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're almost out of time, but uh, I wanted... I just wanted to get maybe a story or two out of you before we <laughs> before we um, get okay. to your your current book. I don't know. You mentioned you mentioned you had a well, who was the story you mentioned you had you some about somebody. Um, oh, I, I was Rackard, I was yeah. inter- I was interviewing Etchegoyen oh, when mm-hmm. the IPA was in Barcelona, mm-hmm. and I I did it for Arnie Richards, you know, which he then used in the, the uh, in Japa. Um, when Arnie was uh, editor of JAPA. So I was, and he was then president of the IPA. And I was on the executive board of the IPA. So I knew I couldn't be late to the meeting. There was a meeting right after our interview because he was president and he was going to, you know, hold the meeting. So, and he was delightful, you know, at your going, it was, it was when he had written that long book on technique, which is a very good book. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're coming, the meeting was at 2.30. It's now 2.20. We're in one hotel. We have to go to another hotel. It's about, you know, and I said, you know, we should go because you're chairing the meeting. He said, no, no. Otto wants to chair the meeting. Otto was president-elect. He said, I'm going to let Otto chair the meeting. I said, oh, well, then I better go because... Uh, Otto is not um, that fond of me. Anyway, <laughs> and he said, no, no, he said, he said, you know, he had read some article of mine where I mentioned Racker. He said, do you teach Racker, don't you? I said, yes. I, uh, he said, well, how did Racker start his book? I said, well, he started his book by, you know, there was a patient who, you know, left the session and paid uh, paid his bill as he was leaving and said, um, this man's a thief. You know, had the thought, the patient had the thought, this man's a thief. You know, and when the patient comes back the next session, Racker hands him the check and says, I'm no thief. You know, and that, all that went on non-verbally. And hmm. going said, that's right, that's how it begins. And I'm giving a facsimile of how it begins. <laughs> uh-huh. And Etchegoyen said, do you know who the patient was? I said, no. I, he said, I was the patient. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. here's this guy who's president of IPA, <laughs> who's just written, I don't know, an 800-page book. <laughs> uh, and seemingly the thing he was proudest of was that he was a patient of Rackers. So I'm, yeah. I'm going down. So he continues to talk to me, and he's a very engaging 
you know, talker. And, he, and as he's telling me this story, he puts, he, Etchegoyen is a, is a very demonstrative guy, and he puts his arms around my neck. Oh, my and God. I'm still, <laughs> and I'm still walking towards, because I don't want to be late to the meeting. And I'm thinking, he's a small, relatively small man. <laughs> How would I look if I'm carrying Etchegoyen into the meeting? <laughs> with him drapped around my neck because I didn't think I could get him off until I had answered the question that, uh, you know, about how Racker began. But Etchegoyen was, um, he was, he was, an, I think, a very, very good interpreter of Klein uh, mm. and softened Klein in a way that really made Klein very accessible to uh, many South Americans. Mm. So that's... Uh, it's a good story. Thanks for telling yeah. that. Um, so now we really are out of time. But I wanted, of course, to ask you about what you're working on now. Well, as I've said, uh, as I've you know tried to uh, you know uh, popularize or uh, in some ways um, propagandize uh, several times that <laughs> I'm writing a book on technique. What about I, it? <laughs> yeah, and, I, <laughs> and it's going to. Uh, be everything you wanted to know about technique we're afraid to ask at your institute wow. so, since hopefully it'll go across institutes uh institute boundaries and um, Good. <laughs> really uh, be an integrative attempt is it but, going to be an 800 page book um uh i the publisher has said <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why i asked that question i i don't care i don't i'll read another 7 800 page book by you you know i have like one they, why not they, another <laughs> they would like they would like a shorter <laughs> they would like a shorter yeah. version uh, this time but i mean once i start writing i actually enjoy writing so who knows how long it'll be how far along are you, are you is it close well you know i've put together you know, about 20 past papers. Mm. Um, and I thought I would do it that way, but I decided it's not, that's not really a way to, you don't enjoy writing that way. So I've written, I would say, about 100 pages of new text. And I think it's, I don't think I'm going to use past papers. Mm. Good. Uh, It'll be fresh. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we should, we should wrap up. Um, and thank you so much. We've been speaking with Stephen Elman about when theories touch a historical and theoretical integration of psychoanalytic thought by Karnak, 2010. Thanks again uh, for joining us, Steve. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. And thanks to our audience for listening. Uh, Till next time.